Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thank you very much for joining us. And if you're not already, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and elsewhere. And do kindly leave us a very nice review. Free expression, we believe, is essential to a healthy democracy. And each week on this podcast, I aim to contribute by having a wide-ranging, candid conversation with leading practitioners and commentators in the world of politics, business, economics, technology, the arts, and culture, exploring in depth the themes, people, and topics shaping our world. My guest this week, a very big week for the U.S. and global economy, I'm glad to say is Mohammed El Aryan, economist and long-standing expert on global financial markets. Mohammed worked for many years at PIMCO, the preeminent bond investment fund, where he was CEO and co-chief investment officer. He was also CEO of Harvard Management Company, which invests Harvard University's significant endowment. He is now president of Queen's College Cambridge and chief economic advisor to Allianz, the insurance giant. Now, among many notable calls in his long and successful career, Mohammed was one of several prominent economists who last year warned that inflation was a serious and sustained threat to the U.S. economy, and he called for action by policymakers, particularly the central bank, to address the challenge. Now, this was at a time when the Federal Reserve and the Biden administration were dismissing the jump in inflation as infamously transitory. A year later, Mohammed's warnings have proved sadly prescient, and we're now struggling with the consequences of what appears to be significant complacency by the policymakers. So Mohammed Alarian joins me now. Thanks, Mohammed. Thank you. So as I say, very big week for the economy. I should say we're recording this Tuesday afternoon, New York time. Federal Reserve is meeting and they'll have their decision on interest rates tomorrow, widely expected to raise rates again, but probably by 75 basis points as they did last month. We've got the GDP numbers coming out on Thursday, which may show possibly that the economy actually contracted for the second straight quarter, the second quarter of 2022. And we have more data on inflation on Friday. It's also a week when we've had a new warning from the IMF about gloomy and uncertain economic outlook. So, Mohammed, let me start with the immediate question about inflation. And as I said in my introduction, you've been proved right about inflation and others have been wrong. But there is now already a view that inflation may actually have peaked, that we are seeing an easing of price pressures, oil prices, broader commodity prices. Some evidence that wages have not been accelerating, the wage demands have been relatively moderate. And in fact, that we may even be in a position now with the Fed aggressively raising interest rates, the Fed may possibly be too aggressive and precipitate a recession. What do you think? So I'm in the camp that inflation has probably peaked as measured by headline inflation and for the reasons you've cited. So for the next three months, at least, the headline measure is likely to come down. However, core inflation that goes beyond food and energy, that's a bigger question mark, which then raises two really important issues. One is how sticky will inflation prove to be going forward? And secondly, what is the collateral damage of the Fed being so late in addressing our inflation problem? So the debate is shifting, is evolving. And my biggest worry, Jerry, is that once again, the Fed is going to be caught offside. What does that mean? Again, we've seen a 50 basis point rise, a 75 basis point rise already in the last few months. We're going to see almost certainly another 75 basis point rise this month. They're expected to do more. Does that mean they are too far too fast? Or you think they're actually going to slow the pace of interest rate increases in the face of this moderation, face of a weakening economy? So it could mean many things. One, in the short term, it means that the Fed is going to be hiking aggressively 
And these hikes are aggressive by any standard, that the Fed is going to be hiking aggressively into a slowing economy, which significantly increases the risk of a recession. So in the short term, it means the Fed may tip us into recession. Over the longer term, so now I'm looking out a year, the market expects that the Fed is going to have to reverse some of its hikes. It's very unusual for the market to be already pricing in reductions, which again speaks to the notion of a very big policy mistake. So imagine you're in a car, it's been going way too fast, the driver didn't take her or his foot off the accelerator when they could have, now they're slamming on the brakes, then they're going to let go of the brakes again, which raises the third possibility, which is the worst of old worlds, and you and I remember what the 70s and 80s were like, which is stop-go, that you end up in the midst of 2023 when the Fed hasn't gotten hold of inflation. We still have an inflation issue, but we've sacrificed a lot of growth. So this is going to be a very interesting period where scenario analyses are really important because we could go in one of many directions. Let's dissect this immediate inflation challenge. Again, as I said, you and others got this right a year ago. As you say, we have seen a sharp rise in headline inflation, may have peaked possibly for the reasons we've talked about. Core inflation, however, remains elevated. Where does that go from here? Is the risk now that core inflation, when you strip out those food and energy prices, you are seeing worrying signs of quite elevated inflation in the service sector, which is obviously much less affected by those global commodity issues that we've seen with supply chain issues and things like that. And does that translate into higher wage demands? We've got obviously very low unemployment at the moment with workers in very, very much short supply and in great demand. Do we start now to embed significant pay increases into this process in a way that would mean that this inflation will be sustained because companies will have to pass on the costs of additional wages. So we're in this position because inflation has become more deeply entrenched and has broadened. And we are now in a stagflationary world. Growth is coming down and inflation is worrisomely high. That's where we are today. Inflation will start destroying and has started destroying demand. If you look at the Walmart um, results, if you look at what Verizon has told us, if you look at many companies that saying, not only did we get hit by inflation on the cost side, but now we're getting hit on inflation on the revenue side. If you look at the household sector, not only has the household sector been hit when it comes to purchasing power, but the household sector is now also going to start facing increasing income insecurity as growth comes down, as there's more talk of recession. In this world, there are going to be some workers that are going to be able to claim higher wages as they try to defend their standard of living. Others will not be able to do so. There are some companies that are going to be able to retain pricing power. Others are not going to be able to. So we're going to have a lot more dispersion in economic outcomes at the household sector and at the corporate sector than we've had so far. What do you say to those who say, look, this inflation is primarily the result of a supply shock? And that's not circumstances that the Federal Reserve, which has, after all, only sort of one real tool for this, which is adjusting interest rates you know, through its open market operations. The Fed can't really deal with a supply shock. It can certainly squeeze demand by raising interest rates in all the ways and all the transmission mechanisms we know about. 
when you have this supply side shock, as again, as we had in the 1970s, in large part because of the result of the sharp increase in oil prices, Federal Reserve policy is much more ineffective. What do you say to that? So I will give you one factoid. In March, the week in which the U.S. printed a 7% handle on inflation, and that refers really to the midpoint of February, so before the Russian-Ukraine war broke out, we were already at 7% plus inflation. The week that we printed that data point in mid-March, the Fed was still injecting liquidity into this economy. So this gives you a feeling for how late, how out of sync the Fed has been. I've called it one of the biggest policy mistakes in the history of the Federal Reserve. Does that mean the Fed could have done something about energy and food prices? The answer is no, but that's not the issue. The issue is that the Fed allowed the first round price increases to start getting embedded into the system. You know, the lesson of the 70s was that if you allow the first hit to inflation to be embedded, you start the anchoring inflation expectations. You start getting the sorts of behavior that we have seen that allow the inflation process to broaden. So today, it is no longer about energy and food prices. Both of them are coming down. It is about the core element of inflations that are driving the process ahead. So yes, they couldn't do anything to the first round, but they should have contained the second round by moving earlier. And as you said, I was one of several economists that warned that if you look at the balance of risk, continuing to simply dismiss it as transitory involve the sorts of risks we're seeing playing out today. What do you make of recent moves in the markets? Again, some people point to moves in that we've seen in, in bond yields, but also in sort of the more technical measures which attempt to measure forward estimates of inflation. There's been a pretty sharp adjustment in markets' expectations in the last few weeks alone. The 10-year US Treasury is trading down at about 2.75%, down from 3.5%, just a little bit over a month or so ago. And markets still seem relatively relaxed about inflation expectations, the so-called, again, these technical measures, but five-year, five-year forward rates do seem to suggest that they don't expect the kind of elevated inflation that we've seen over the last year to continue. Is that because they just expect the Fed's policy to have such a, a negative effect on demand that the economy will weaken so much that actually inflation will weaken that way? Or do they think somehow the Fed is getting it right? It is the former. So it's really important to look at what has been driving markets. For the first five months of the year, it was all about inflation risk and therefore interest rate risk. And we saw the break-even inflation priced in peak. We saw, as you pointed out, the 10-year go up to 348. And it was all about inflation risk. And the notion was the Fed was late. The Fed was going to have to hike aggressively. Then people started realizing the consequences of these aggressive hikes in a global economy that is itself slowing. And the focus has gone from interest rate stroke inflation risk to recession stroke credit risk. So in the first phase, both bonds and stocks sell off and sell off quite violently. And that's why the 60-40 portfolio failed so many investors. In the second phase, when it's no longer about inflation or interest rate risk, but it's about credit risk, bonds start doing better. And they start performing their role of diversifier, while stocks remain volatile because they're subject to recession risk. So today, recession is of much higher concern to the marketplace than 
inflation, but that's because inflation has been so high and the Fed is now, quote, unconditionally, unquote, committed to dealing with inflation. Let's talk about recession then. How do you see the US economy at the moment? We're going to have these GDP numbers coming out on Thursday. There's a lot of attention. There's been a lot of attention drawn to them, not least because the White House came out with a statement at the end of last week saying, look, even if it's a second quarter of negative growth, it doesn't mean a recession. I went into this a little bit in my column this week. Actually, they're kind of right in technical terms. We have a different way of measuring recessions. But you know, that's the commonly understood idea of recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which we may have. But at the same time as we've been having that weak or even negative growth in the first half of the year, we've still seen labor markets in remarkably strong situation. You know, average three, 400,000 jobs a month, the unemployment rate down to 3.6%. That's not normal circumstances for a, an economy with flat or negative growth, is it? It's not. And, and you have to understand where we're coming from. We're coming from a world where policymakers believed that the major problem was insufficient aggregate demand. There wasn't enough demand in the economy. So it's pedal to the metal on the fiscal side. It's pedal to the metal on the monetary side because you're trying to generate demand. And I think that if you were to characterize the recovery from the global financial crisis, you would say, in general, we had deficient aggregate demand. Comes the pandemic, and suddenly we move from a world of insufficient aggregate demand to a world of insufficient aggregate supply. So you see labor force participation come down. You see people exiting the labor force. You see supply chain disruptions. You see high input prices. The supply side becomes a problem. And when you have a policy that's directed at insufficient aggregate demand, but importantly, your problem is insufficient aggregate supply, you end up by having high inflation, is what we have. You end up by having the incredible coincidence, as you pointed out, of inflation starting to destroy demand, even though the labor force remains strong. Now, the labor market is in a good place if measured by the unemployment rate, 3.6%, if measured by job creation. What is missing in the labor market is high labor force participation that hasn't recovered fully. And because of that, we have this coincidence that you pointed out to. The concerns people have now is that quite a few companies have either slowed the pace of hiring or have started laying off people. And weak, initial weakless jobless claims, the canary, if you like, in the coal mine is starting to flash. You know what? Let's not take for granted the strength of the labor market. We've got to take a short break there. But when we come back, we'll have more with economist Mohammed El Aryan on inflation, the Fed, and the rising risk of recession. Stay with us. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet, oracle.com slash wallstreet. Welcome back. We're talking with economist, president of Queen's College, Cambridge, Mohamed el -Aryan. As you sit here, what's the probability in your view of a recession now, either that we're in one or that we will have one in the next year? So that's where definitions are important. As you pointed out, the technical definition of a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. The economist definition 
which follows a little bit the more holistic approach that the National Bureau of Economic Research that officially declares a recession. The economists tend to look way beyond just the GDP number. So if you take that holistic view, I agree with you, we are not in a recession right now. But I think the risks are uncomfortably high. I worry about it, Jerry. And, you know, the marketplace worries about it. And the main issue is because no one wants aggressive interest rate hikes into a slowing economy. You don't want that. It doesn't mean the Fed should not hike. The Fed has no choice but to hike. Otherwise, we'll end up with the worst of all worlds, which is a recession and high inflation. So the Fed has no choice but to hike. But unfortunately, because it was asleep at the wheel, there's a high risk that it will cause a recession. And how bad would that recession be? For most people, unemployment is a pretty solid measure of the strength of an economy. And as you say, it's been declining and we've got, you know, huge numbers of people have left the labor force. In general uh, terms, how serious would the recession be if we have one? So it will be less bad than what we see in the rest of the world, what you see in Europe, what you see in a number of developing countries. We will continue to be the cleanest, dirty shirt. We're not completely clean, but relative to everybody else, we will look better. In terms of how bad, I would warn against people who are confidently saying it will be a very mild recession. You know, they tend to be the same people who assured us over and over again that this was going to be transitory inflation? The answer is we don't know. There are a lot of imbalances. There's a lot of debt in the economy. Financial markets are still too stretched. I wouldn't go out and say, if we get a recession, we're mild. I'll tell you that we've got to do whatever we can right now. And we're not doing enough, Jerry. And that's not just the Fed's fault. It's also Congress's fault. We're not doing enough right now to minimize the damage that could well be coming down at us right now. What should we be doing then? So I think first, the Fed needs to regain control of the situation, and it needs to address its four persistent failures. These are persistent failures of analysis, failures of forecast, failures of action, and failures of communication. Until the Fed addresses these four issues, we are not going to deal with the inflation problem. I mean, compare the Fed to the European Central Bank. The ECB has come out and explained to the marketplace why it got its inflation forecast wrong for so long. The Fed has not. Compare the Fed to the Bank of England. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, has been honest, maybe too honest about what he sees. The Fed has been, to use um, a phrase from your original country, okay, has been in fairy tale economics. The minute the Fed issues projections, even former Fed officials dismiss them as unrealistic. So you need the Fed to address its four persistent failures. That is necessary, but not sufficient. You need a few other things. You need much more attention to the supply side of the economy, to productivity, to labor force participation. We can do it. It requires Congress to come together and agree on How do we do that? You know, there's a lot we can do on labor force participation through childcare, through training, through retooling. Productivity is a big issue. We need a focus on productivity. Private-public partnerships are critical if we are not to be left behind in terms of digital innovations. So we need a focus on the supply side, just as we have had this amazing focus on the demand side. That, again, is necessary but not sufficient. We need two other things. One is we need better assessment of financial stability of the non-banks. The irony is with the years of ultra-loose 
Fed policy, including massive and predictable injections of liquidity, the non-banks have taken on too much risk. And they now are where the systemic risk lies. And yet, we have not seen enough being done in terms of understanding and addressing that element of financial risk. And then finally, we need much better global policy coordination. Jerry, a lot of these issues require collective action. And unfortunately, right now, the international policy coordination is at a very, very low level. I want to move on to some international issues, but just before I do that, you've been very critical of the Fed, but I wonder what role you think fiscal policy played in our current predicament too. Again, I think you were pretty critical. I know other economists, people like Larry Summers, were very critical of the decision by the Biden administration and then, of course, the vote in Congress to pass an additional nearly $2 trillion of COVID relief at the start of the early 2021, saying $2 trillion was an enormous injection of demand into an economy in which there were already significant shortages and in which there was already significant pent-up demand. Do you think that did play a significant role? I think with hindsight, we would have done two things differently if we were in a perfect world. One is we would have focused much more support to emphasize the most vulnerable segments of the population. We did a lot of general support at a time when we really should have focused more on the more vulnerable segments of the population. And then the second thing, and that was tried in in the package that never passed, we should have done a lot more early on on the supply side, explicitly addressing bottlenecks on the supply side, which the package that never got through Congress was trying to do. But by that time, it was very hard because the first one hadn't focused enough on the supply side. So, you know, with hindsight, I would have done these two things. But I want to stress, while the blame game involves lots of people, it is the Fed, it is fiscal, it is Putin, that lots of people in the blame game, I think that we would be in a better position right now had the Fed acted. My main criticism is actually at the Fed rather than at the administration. What did go wrong? As you say, you've been very critical and you really think it's one of the most serious policy mistakes they've made. Now, we've had, you know, an interesting period with the Fed. I covered the Fed for a long time when I was at a different newspaper and I covered Alan Greenspan when he was in his pomp and everybody thought he was God. And then we had Ben Bernanke. But then we've had a kind of, you know, obviously we had the financial crisis in 2007, 2009, which in many respects the Federal Reserve perhaps didn't anticipate, didn't do it, maybe contributed to through a very sort of cautious approach to monetary policy in that period. We've had a rather bumpy period since then. I mean, is this specific to the Fed led by Chairman Jay Powell in the last few years? Or is there a broader problem that we've seen with central banks, particularly the US central bank over the last decade or so? So you know that I am a great supporter of central banks and a great supporter of central bank independence. I think central banks are absolutely critical to the well-functioning of an economy. And that is why I've been dismayed by what I think will be one of the biggest Fed policy mistakes. I didn't want this to happen. I wanted to be wrong on my projections. So what went wrong? I think lack of humility. I think lack of looking at broad data. It was clear to us, different economists got to their conclusions in different ways. I got to my conclusion by listening to companies. I listened to earning calls. And it was clear to me in April and May, that we needed to keep an open mind, that we we should hope that inflation was transitory, but companies weren't that confident. Companies were seeing things in the supply chains that were problematic. They were seeing shipping problems. They were seeing container problems. Company after company was warning as early as the 
first quarter earnings calls, that they didn't think this was going to be transitory. And that's why I argued, keep an open mind. I think cognitive capture had happened within the Fed. Cognitive captures by macro models that were designed for a world of insufficient aggregate demand. I'll give you the perfect example. The so-called new monetary framework, which is still in place, by the way. Let's wait for inflation to occur. It doesn't matter if inflation is above target for a while. We're not going to react. That is the absolutely wrong framework to have. But it was introduced in 2021 to show you the cognitive capture that was going on. And then cognitive capture by macro models. And then once the Fed got identified with the transitory call, it was very difficult for the Fed to abandon it. And as you know, it took till the very last day of November for them to, quote, retire that mischaracterization. And by then it was too late. I wonder if you think, though, there's a sense, a wider sense, you talk about the importance of central bank independence, that central bank independence has been compromised. You and I both grew up in an age when central banks were supposed to be contrarian, right? I mean, the famously, the famous phrase of the former Federal Reserve chairman taking away the punch bowl just as the party gets going. That's what they were supposed to do. And indeed, that's why we wanted independent central banks. So they wouldn't be prey to the kind of political temptation to keep pumping demand, especially in line with the electoral cycle, and that they would push back against the sort of political pressures that always wanted to spend more and ultimately produce more inflation. And we did have that period. We had it for a long time. But, you know, beginning with the financial crisis, perhaps when the Fed moved in lockstep with the Treasury, again, I think people would, most people would acknowledge on the specific issues, it, you know, it had to do that. But the Fed and the Treasury came to be absolutely identified, you know, sort of committee to save the world kind of thing. And then since then, maybe this sense that there has been, well, just maybe a little bit too close an alignment between the Fed and the federal government, you know, including some people who suspect that Jay Powell maybe may have been a little bit weaker on inflation last year because he wanted to be reappointed. I don't know. I mean, again, I don't want to get into specific allegations like that. But do you think that we're now in an era where that sense of a strong, independent central bank that was willing to lean in the other direction from where the politicians were going, do you think we maybe have have lost that? I think we've lost it, but we've lost it over time for three different reasons, if I may say. Phase one, 2010 onwards, was central banks feeling that they were morally obligated to be the only game in town, to take on policy responsibilities beyond what they could deliver as bridge building. Remember what 2010 looked like for the Fed. It was clear that they needed to hand off from exceptional policies, QE, zero interest rate, etc., and give the handoff to the fiscal agency to structure reforms to grow genuinely now that the financial system had been repaired. But there was no one to give the handoff to. The rise of the Tea Party, the shutdown of government, the shellacking of the Democrats, the split executive Congress issue. So central banks kept on being the only game in town, using an imperfect instrument that is meant just to be a bridging, and it became almost embedded in the system. And you were kind enough to interview me on my 2016 book, The Only Game in Town, that warned that this paradigm was starting to create real problems. Phase two is when central banks realized that the net benefits were either negligible or negative and tried to exit it. At that point, they had been co-opted by markets. So you have the famous example of the 2018 fourth quarter attempt by Chair Powell to reduce support for the economy because the economy didn't need it. But then we had the volatility in the markets. And then famously in January of 2019, 
He U-turned when there was no need to U-turn. And then that just confirmed to the market that they could hold the Fed hostage. Then the third phase was the one where I think I'm most disappointed, which is the lack of cognitive diversity, the lack of expertise. You know, it's a very strange situation that at a time when you need the central bank to be incredibly skillful, whether it's the ECB or the Fed, you don't have trained economists at the head. And it really matters because you're in a room where you have to make very fine judgments and your training really matters in that world. So I think we've gone through different phases, but my concern right now is the same as yours, is that these institutions are critical to the wealth functioning of markets. And right now, the Fed has a huge credibility problem. We had this problem we throughout the Fed put, again, I'm old enough to remember when it was called the Greenspan put, this idea that you know, whenever the markets fell sharply and looked like they might precipitate you know, real dislocation in the broader economy, the Fed would come to the rescue with essentially with easy monetary policy, interest rate cuts, and then into QE and everything else. And that, again, it migrated from the Fed put to the Bernanke put, and it's now just the Fed put. This sort of almost kind of asymmetric sense we have, the Fed is always there to provide huge amount of monetary support, as it has done over the last few years, by the way, with reaction to the pandemic or the financial crisis. That does seem to have tilted the entire kind of policymaking playing field in favor of aggressive sort of monetary accommodation. You're absolutely right. Um, that's another issue is I think that there aren't enough people that come from the financial markets in the policy making situations on the FOMC, for example. Look, if you're in the financial markets, you know the following. You know that if you're investing, not only do you need to be happy about the fundamentals of your investments, the balance sheet, the management, the business prospects, But you need to ask yourself the following question, who will buy after me? Because the subsequent buyer does two things for you. One, they validate your purchase. And most of the time, they push the price higher. Two, is they provide you liquidity in case you need to change your mind. And there's many reasons why you may need to change your mind. If you buy an apartment, there's nothing better for you than after you finish buying the apartment for other apartments to be bought at higher prices. And you may want to move at that point. You may have made a mistake, got a job somewhere else. It's good to have people who want the apartments. Now, suppose I come to you and I say the subsequent buyer, Jerry, is a central bank with a printing press in the basement, a infinite willingness to buy, and is non-commercial. They don't care about the price. They're not buying to make money. They're buying for other reasons. If I tell you that, you will take on much more risk than you would otherwise, because you are comforted that there's a buyer in the capital structure that is a consistent non-commercial buyer. And that's exactly what happened. And every time the Fed tries to say, hey, wait, I'm not that reliable, the market says, yes, you have to be. Otherwise, we're going to cause financial instability that will undermine the real economy. And that's the problem, is you got this very unhealthy codependency that occurred. You called it the various puts. But what was the language governing the marketplace? It was three things. Tina, there is no alternative to risk assets because the Fed is always going to be behind us. The Fed is our BFF, our best friend forever. Two, buy the dip. And three, FOMO, fear of missing out. If you don't buy it, you know, you're going to miss yet another market opportunity. And that's the sort of problem we got ourselves into. And it all comes back to the reliable 
massive buyer who's non-commercial. It is an incredibly powerful distorter of markets. You paint a very overall worrying picture, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, A, you think that um, you know inflation is pretty well embedded and the Fed's going to have to be aggressive. You then also say you think there's a risk the Fed having messed things up really quite badly in the last year could compound that by the sort of a kind of stop-go, putting the foot, they take foot on and off the brake over the next year or two with interest rates, which could create further problems. You talk about wider loss of confidence in the Fed. And, and you talk about the you know, very high probability of a recession. You say it's not going to be probably as bad as the recession we had uh, in 2007, 2009, but you think it's not going to be mild as people think. Taking all of that into account, where the markets are right now, we've seen a you know significant correction from where the markets were at the beginning of the year. This year has been a rough one in markets. Do you think that there does seem to have been some sort of stability seems to return? As I said earlier, we've seen the 10-year bond yield coming down quite sharply. We've seen a sort of a pretty flat equities for the last month or so. Do you think all of these risks that you've talked about are priced in, or do you expect further risk to the market in the next uh, few months? So you and I have set out scenarios. Okay, and I think scenario analysis is really important, as I said earlier. And recession is a risk scenario. It's not a done deal. The Fed stop-go is not preordained. Okay, that would just be another mistake. So I want to stress we have the ability to minimize the damage. This is not an engineering problem. This is a policy implementation challenge. Okay, And it's a challenge that goes beyond the Fed. The Fed is central to it, but it goes beyond the Fed. If we do not get an improvement in policymaking, then yes, I will sound very worried. And remember, all this comes on top of other challenges that we hadn't totally dealt with, and at a time where our resilience has been run down by our battle against COVID. What about the marketplace? I think the marketplace right now is relieved that interest rates have come down. It's relieved that inflation risk and interest rate risk is no longer dominating every discussion. It is starting to price in recession risk. We will see today is as you said, we're taping on a Tuesday. You need only see what has happened to the Walmart share price to recognize that the recession risk isn't fully priced in. So I think the market is still too optimistic in terms of the economic outlook. You mentioned at the beginning the world's economic outlook by the IMF, where they've significantly revised down global growth. You know, we are in July. And the IMF has just knocked off another 0.4 percentage points of global growth. And it's probably going to have to revise it down again in October. So we haven't quite priced in the recession risk. I think we have priced in the interest rate inflation risk. Where does that leave me? I would be cautious as to what to do. Particularly, it depends on where you are. If you had a 90% exposure to equities, I would take advantage of the recent stability to reduce that. If you've had no exposure to equity, well, you know what? There's already some bargains out there. So I always say it really matters where you're coming from in terms of what that means in terms of investment advice. We focused heavily on, on the US for obvious reasons. I do want to ask you, though, very briefly as we conclude about Europe, where you spend a lot of your time. Obviously, you're president of Queen's College Cambridge, and you also have a role at Allianz, the insurance company. As we look at Europe, you look at the tremendous shock that Europe is experiencing with energy prices. By the way, just today, the further big shock to natural gas prices as Russia has once again announced that it's reducing supply to Germany. We have a major political crisis unfolding in Italy, which is 
becoming increasingly entangled in financial markets with the spread of Italian bond yields over German bunds, rising fears of serious Italian problems and the possibility of a very populist government being elected. We have the broader European economy looking like it's obviously, for obvious reasons, going to be much more badly affected and damaged by the energy crisis. How Worried are you there about the stability of the European economy, the fragility of the euro, of what's going on there? Do you think we're facing another one? I don't think we're facing a crisis where the existence of the euro and the coherence of the eurozone and the integrity of the eurozone is going to be put into question like it was in 2012 in particular. But Europe is facing a very difficult outlook in relative terms, not in absolute terms, in relative terms, it makes the US look good. And in fact, there's a reason why dollar strength has been a constant theme this year, because I go back, the US in relative terms is the cleanest dirty shirt. Um, So why do I worry about Europe? I think that growth outlook is even more worrisome than the US, that dealing with a major shock, as you said, to energy supplies. And today's news just illustrates how real that risk is. The inflation hasn't peaked. The UK, for example, is at 9%. The Bank of England predicts 11%. Unlike the US, where you could argue there's a significant probability that headline inflation has peaked. You can't make that argument for Europe and for the UK. Policy flexibility is less. Central banks have less room for maneuver because the growth outlook is so poor. And you need to be able to make policies for 19 countries that vary tremendously, as you pointed out, in where they are. So if you take all that together, Europe is much more concerning than the US is. But I don't think we get to a situation where the Eurozone is threatened because the ECB understands the issue. And that's why they recently introduced this very fancy name, transmission protection instrument, which is another way of saying it's to safeguard the Eurozone. The more general issue, Jerry, is that we sit here with major question marks about Europe, question marks about the US, question marks about China. So these are the three most systemic areas in the world. And then little fires everywhere in the commodity importing developing countries. So if I was to ask you, point to one powerful growth model in the world economy today that doesn't rely on oil or something else, just point to one genuine powerful growth model, I certainly cannot point to one. So we have a growth deficit in the global economy as a whole, and without economic growth, all sorts of problems become more acute. I'm sorry to have to end on that rather troubling note, but uh, that was a very, very thorough tour d'horizon from Mohamed al Mohamed, thank you very much indeed. I hope some of your more pessimistic observations are not borne out by events, but I think you've made it very, very clear what the challenges and what the risks are, and indeed what needs to be done. Thank you very much indeed. And I have the same hope, and I hope that policymakers step up to the plate, as they say in the US. Mohamed, thanks very much. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us again next week for another exploration of the big issues driving our world. Thanks and goodbye. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. 
Discover more at viking.com.